1 Thessalonians 4, verses uh, 13 to 18. If you haven't got a Bible, that's okay. We're going to be projecting it as usual on the screen. Um, so, good morning, everybody else, everyone. Uh, for visitors, my name's Raj, by the way. Um, um, if you're new to the ch- uh, church, if it's one of your uh, first few Sunday mornings, great to have you with us. Uh, greetings from all of us. Um, This morning we're going to be continuing, we've been doing a sermon series, continuing in our sermon series, Life to the Full, uh, before we take a break from next week uh, for Christmas. Uh, I've loved hearing over the last few months, loved hearing people sharing stories, getting insights into many different areas of life, often challenging and sometimes difficult parts of life. That Jesus, hear this, that Jesus wants to bring restoration. He wants to bring peace. He wants to bring transformation. And dare I say it, he wants to bring joy in different parts of our life. Um, Life to the full. That's what he meant in John 10.10 when he says, I have come, Jesus, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or the message version puts it like this. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Jubilee, what's your dream? What's your dream? In friendships, in marriage, in singleness, in our generosities we've just seen there, as we parent together as a church, as we battle daily with temptation, Jesus wants to bring his life in the midst of our lives changing everything. Fullness, not half empty. That's Jesus' plan. That's Jesus' plan for you. And so today we're going to be unpacking another area of life, a difficult area of life, but an area of life that affects every single one of us. No one escapes this very, very important life. It's a certainty we all face, and that is death. Death. I don't think I've ever preached a whole sermon on death before. Um, We often mention it, but let me tell you, it's very, very important. Why? Because we will all face death at some time in our life, probably over, over a few times in different areas as we move through life. It's everywhere. Despite what medical journals tell you, I read a few of them, despite what medical journals tell you, you know what? The death rate isn't really falling. It's still 100%. And really, how we approach this finite moment is crucial. It's crucial. And what I want to propose to you this morning is really big. It's really big. Over the years of grappling with um, different times of, of experiencing death in my lifetime so far, I've found that Christianity, this is the big thing, Christianity, above all other worldviews and beliefs, has the greatest resources to navigate the death we see all around us. That's my conclusion. That trusting in Jesus transforms, that trusting in Jesus transforms my whole view of death in such a way that it affects how I live today and also how I deal with all the death around me and how one day I'll come and face death to me, myself. In fact, I would go as far as to say, um, I would go as far as to say um, that I really fear 
I remember just writing this and kind of feeling kind of a holy fear, if you like, for others who try and approach death without, um, without Jesus. I saw the consequences of that in my family, my mom, my dad, my brother, over the years that have gone by. Now, those are big statements, aren't they? I've started with some very big statements. I don't say them lightly. I've had lots of years, if you like, to think about it. If you're not a Christian here this morning, what I've said, or if you've just become a Christian this morning, I know there's some people here today who that would fit for, you know what? What I've just said there might possibly shock you. It might possibly offend you. But just bear with me for the next 20 minutes or so. And let me show you what I mean. What the Bible tells us about and promises us about the whole area of death. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. A letter written to a bit like what Ben brought about the Ephesian church. A letter written to an early church in Greece suffering great persecution and death amongst its uh, congregation. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be informed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, no Jesus. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, so, so we will be with the Lord forever. That song we've just sung. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for... Um, the life you've given us. I thank you, Lord, for the eternity we, you promise us as we come to trust you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as I um, open this up, as I open God's words up, as, as um, you've, you, you, you've used me. Thank you, Lord, that you've used me. I pray, Lord God, that these words of the Apostle Paul come to life in our hearts, that they bring encouragement, that they bring perseverance, that they bring purpose in our life today. Not a fear. I pray against a fear. But I pray against a steadfastness and a courage that your gospel is wonderful, amazing. And I pray also, Lord God, that this gospel does, doesn't just affect each and every one of us, but comes from us through our mouths, through our actions, so that others may be touched so that others may be touched by the wonder of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, where do we start? Uh, how about we kick off with what people think about approaching death? How do people deal with it? Uh, you see, there's loads of beliefs out there um, about death, all sorts of shapes and sizes when it comes to thinking about death. From a Muslim living on the West Bank who believes that a Palestinian boy killed by Israeli soldiers goes straight to heaven or paradise, 
Or to a practicing Hindu, I was from a Hindu family, uh, who believes in karma and that she'll return in a different body at the next stage of her destiny. Or to an Orthodox Jew who awaits the full body resurrection of the righteousness, righteous. To a Buddhist who hopes after death to disappear like a drop in the ocean into the great formless and nameless beyond, losing their personal identity altogether. That's just mainstream beliefs. There's all sorts of stuff out there. There's lots more if you really uh, look into it. Death is real, but death is also very confusing and puzzling. It's mysterious, actually. We can't ignore it. At this time of year, every year as a GP, I remember coming to my desk every morning and seeing this list of people who I've known, some of them for 17 years, have died. We find that, we find that in the kind of colder periods uh, of, 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 of our practice. Suddenly, the, it used to shock me all the time when I, used to, when I first start, started um, working as a GP. People die. So generally, how do we approach death generally? See verse 13, it says this. This is, this is what the Apostle Paul thought about it. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That's what he says. That was a radical statement then, and you know what? It's a radical statement now. Let me explain. You see, I think there are mainly two ways... There's variations, but there are many two ways that people pro approach the end of life. Firstly, there are what call, what's called the Stoics, right? I'm not talking about Greek Stoics particularly, but the Stoics, the Stoicism. This is probably the most ancient way, actually. Most cultures would probably fall into this category. The Stoics tell us to keep a stiff upper lip. Yes, death is tough. Death is awful, but hey... Pull yourself together. Don't show emotion. That's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to help. In fact, they try to avoid grieving and weeping and lamenting like bad weather. We see it in early Greek writings, actually. Homer in the Iliad writes uh, to a grieving father, bear up and don't give way to angry grief. Nothing will come of sorrowing for your son, nor will you raise him up before you die. That's what he says. In other words, what's the use of crying? It's not going to change a thing. It's not going to bring him back. This is just the way life is. Luther and the early German church reformers were a bit like this too, some of them. They, they felt showing your emotions demonstrated a lack of faith. They argued forcefully that Jesus already has bore all of our pain and punishment for sin. There was, therefore, there was no room for screaming and wailing. And actually, today, we can see a bit of that sometimes in the church, can't we? Grieving can sometimes be viewed as a lack of faith or sometimes bad theology. But the Apostle Paul says, grieve, but don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So there's stoicism. This is the long-standing ancient way of handling grief. I remember my dad was like that when my mom and brother died some years ago. But actually, there's something else that has crept in over the, 30, over the last 30 or 40 years or so with the kind of discovery of psychology and the counseling movement Actually, in history, when, when you actually look at history and how people have approached death, 
um, in the history of humanity, this kind of thinking is unprecedented. No one ever before has approached death this way. It's the stream of thought that goes something like this. Death is natural. Death is just a part of life, like in the great film The Lion King. The circle of life. Nothing to grieve or fear over. Nothing. It's normal. It's, it's beautiful even. It's peaceful. Don't worry. I remember when my mom died of breast cancer at the age of 50. I was in my early 20s at the time. Um, and the guy who spoke, I think he was a humanist guy who did the service, I can't remember now, um, who spoke after her cremation, and he tried to cons- console me about, um, uh, he tried to console me by saying, it's okay, death is natural part of life. That's what he said. He said, you'll get over it. You'll see it for what it really is. And I remember thinking, no way. This isn't how it's supposed to be. There's nothing natural about this at all. I was angry. Something deep inside of me wanted to yell out, that's rubbish. Stop saying that. But I also remember driving up from London after my brother died. Just a year before. Um, he was tw- he's only 28 years old. And as the taxi parked up, Um, near the house, the lights were all on. Vivid memories. I could hear the shrieking and the wailing that was coming from my home as I got out of the taxi. And as I walked in there, there were loads of people around my mum who were screaming and crying and yelling almost inconsolably. It's a memory that even today, uh, over 20 years on, is very vivid in my head. There's nothing, there's nothing natural about death. In fact, we see as Jesus approaches the tomb, as Jesus approaches the tomb of the dead Lazarus, his dead friend Lazarus, he doesn't say, Martha, Mary, the grieving sisters, he doesn't say to them, they're there, keep a step up a lip. Chin up, girls. Be strong. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say death is part of life. Don't be angry. What does it say in the Bible? It says in John 11, when Jesus saw Martha weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. In fact, the English translators of that kind of play it down a bit. The Greek actually describes him quaking with rage. He was angry. He was furious, not chin up. You see, death to Jesus was a monstrosity. It was an intrusion. It was an aberration. It wasn't meant to be like this. The poet Dylan Thomas was probably more closer to what Jesus more closer to Jesus when he writes, Do not go gentle into that good night, death. Old age should burn and rave at close of day, death. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. In fact, we see that throughout the Bible, don't we? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes death as the last enemy, the ultimate villain who wormed into the world in Genesis 3. We've read it. As Adam decided to be his own boss, rejecting God, saying, stuff you to the giver of light. On that day, death moved into humanity. People have 
People have been rejecting God again and again ever since. The en- this enemy, this villain, this executioner seems to keep beating things like penicillin, chemotherapy, heart surgery, all that we throw at it. He seems invincible. Until Jesus came. You see, Jesus brought something new to the whole idea and experience of death. Something radical. In the midst of death, he brought a hope beyond all hope. You see, as a Christian, we're not Stoics. Death is terrible, but hey, chin up. We're also not, um, de- we're not from the death is natural brigade either. No, instead, what does it say? Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve. You can grieve, but we do not want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Question. What's that hope that the Apostle Paul is giving to these suffering, sometimes dying believers? What hope is there in the midst of that final thing called death. I'll tell you. It's the hope of resurrection. Resurrection. We've been singing it about it this morning. Great songs. I've loved worshipping. Do you know what? We have an am- I'm just a bit detail. We have an amazing worship. We have amazing worship teams here, don't we? This is th- you guys are remarkable. I love the worship that goes on. And not just because it's lovely singing, zippity doo da, blah blah blah. No, because it's instilling in me truth and hope and courage and confidence. That's why we worship. Yeah, we worship this God who is all of those things. Anyhow, it's the hope of resurrection. No one had ever seen it before until Jesus. God himself was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead, that's the difference. That's what's so radical here. This is the hope that makes us, as those who trust and cherish Jesus, different from the rest of mankind who have no hope. See verse 14, it says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You see, this is one of the most important and yet baffling. There's a lot of things that are baffling when I read the Bible. But this is one of the most important and yet most baffling, confusing things we see as Christians. See what it says? That our death and resurrection takes place because we are in someone else. In fact, I would say, if we don't get this theological reality... We wobble throughout life without any we wobble through throughout life without any real certainty of our future. We grieve like the rest of mankind without hope. But if we do get this, that this in something else, someone else reality of Christianity, it's dynamite what Paul is saying here. Let's look at it for a moment. Paul said Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, the first of humanity, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, God's rescuer to save the world, God himself rescuing the world, so in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam all die, in Christ life. Whoa. Why do we die? Why do we die? 
It doesn't say because of sin here, does it? No, it says we die because we're in Adam. Also, amazingly, it doesn't say that we're made alive because of our righteousness and goody-two-shoes living either, does it? No, we get made alive because we've moved from being in Adam by faith to now being in Christ. That again is a phenomenal statement. See, we live in a world that finds this um, a little bit unfair, very unfair. We're also, because we're such an it's all about me, individualistic kind of people, that statement sounds bizarre. It sounds unreasonable. Our whole society is built on the basis that you're rewarded or punished because of your behavior, not someone else's. The fact that we die because of Adam's sin sounds a bit like uh, Jojo being punished for Jesh smashing our windows. That's not fair, people would say. But the Apostle Paul, God's Jesus' understanding of the human race is altogether different. Not just small, small, me, 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 generation, but rather God sees his whole creations, creation, generations of humanity as connected, a much bigger view, connected, interdependent, relying, a beautiful whole thing. And so what happens to one affects us all. Probably the best analogy I've heard, I always find it very difficult to explain this to people, but one of the best analogies that I've heard is from a guy called Andrew Wilson, who's a Bible teacher at King's Church London. He says, imagine, try not to imagine too hard, but imagine, he says, imagine suddenly someone walked into the room and stabbed me in the chest. It would make no difference whatsoever to Craig over there You might get a little upset, maybe. However, it would make an enormous difference to the well-being of my kidneys and my brain. Yeah, that my kidneys would stop filtering blood. My brain would stop processing information, believe it or not, it still does. And, And my left eye would stop seeing, wouldn't it? I was stabbed in the chest, but it's affected my kidneys, my eyes, my brain. Now, when the paramedics came flying in, walked through the door, yep, and land at the scene, it would be totally stupid for them to start saying stuff like, that's not fair, his left eye didn't get stabbed. It wasn't his kidney's fault. What did his brain do to deserve that? Daft questions, silly questions. Why? Because as human beings, we're an organic whole, aren't we? Uh, my left eye didn't, didn't die because it did something wrong. Uh, it, it died because it was inseparably connected to the rest of me. So what happens to one member of my body happens to all the rest of it. That's how we were created. We don't die because we sin, although we do sin regularly. No, we die because we're in Adam and what happened to him has also happened to us. That's God's understanding. That's a biblical view. That's how the Bible sees sin and death. Much, much, if you really think about it, worse than we see it. Much more heartbreaking to God than us just brushing it under the carpet. But, but, just say that paramedic walked through and got me to James Cook Hospital and a the doctor there went, 
and got my heart going again, started pumping again. Well then, my kidneys would start filtering again. My brain would start processing again. And my left eye would start seeing again. Woohoo! Jubilee, that's where you and I stand in connection with Jesus as we've given our life to him in faith. That's a reality. That's what our baptisms keep reminding. That's what our baptism keeps reminding of us. There's no doubt here because it's not based on my wrong or right doing, but rather his resurrection from the dead. We jubilee are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15:20 says, "But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since Death came through a man, Adam. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, a God-man, Jesus. He is the first fruits, the early crop of the harvest that shows surely, certainly, definitely a huge, huge crop is on its way. Jesus' defeat on the cross of the last enemy, death, means that we will definitely be raised to perfect, glorious flourishing life in Christ. We will. We will. We will. C.S. Lewis writes this, If we let him, God, if he let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we're in for, jubilee, nothing less. This is the hope we rub into grief, isn't it? This is the truth that makes death not the final executioner, but rather a doorway to glory and beauty and joy eternal. Paul talks about it as a sleep. When Jesus was sobbing and furious and raging about Lazarus' death, what did he do? He wept, he cried, he was deeply troubled. We've talked about that. But then what happens? He rushes towards Lazarus' tomb and declares what? What does he say? What does he say? He says that as well. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's in that story. And he says, do you believe this, Martha? Jubilee, do you believe this? It changes everything. That's why we sacrifice. That's why we forgive. That's why we give generously. That's why our lives puzzle our friends. That's why we love each other. That's why the church really is the hope of the world. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where or death is your victory? Where or death is your sting? For to me, to to live is Christ and to die is gain. What truths. What a gospel. What a life changer. But do you know what? That's just the beginning. 
doesn't end there. Finally, face to face. See verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead will rise first. After that, we who are still alive are left, and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, therefore, because of all of that, encourage one another. Put courage into one another with these words. This is the promise. This is the hope above all hope. Not just resurrection, not just made alive, but eternal, forever, face-to-face love with the living God. Everywhere. In my prayers, I often find myself crying out to God for Him to open my eyes so that I see more of Him or to lift my head to, or to bring clarity to what I experience of the things of God. I often ask for that in my prayers. And, and often that kind of takes me or reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, For now we see through a dark glass. For now we see through a glass darkly. But then... Face to face. That's what he says. Paul was probably referring to the old Corinthian polished bronze mirrors. They weren't like the giant mirrors that we see in people's houses or bedrooms today. These mirrors that Paul used were little things. They were hazy, blurred, small things. They often distorted the images. Uh, They got old and dark. You You might have been able to kind of make out that I was... I was coloured maybe, or you might have been able to see the beautiful contours of this physique. But you wouldn't have seen the detail. The, the, scar, the, the smallpox scar, my brown eyes, the greying of the beard, the little wrinkles. If you wanted to see that kind of detail, you'd have to come face to face. I know that would be, I was, Dave's the only person that wouldn't, that wouldn't scare. Face to face. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. It's it's the huge contrast of knowing Jesus now against the contrast of knowing him when he returns again, again, to put all things right, to create a new heavens and a new earth, to fill the cosmos perfectly with his unspoilt glory, to show death, the last enemy, finally and ultimately, his undeniable, unquestionable, absolute defeat. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia. He was driving back He's driving his kids back home after the funeral of their mom, his wife. Uh, The youngest of the children who was in the car was grieving, crying. And Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was trying to help his son. At one point, he looked up and he said, Do you see that truck, fella? Yeah, Dad. And do you see the shadow of that truck? Yeah, I do. Son, would you rather be hit by the truck or the shadow? Well, the answer was obvious, wasn't it? By the shadow, of course, Dad. Who wants to be hit by a truck? And Donald Gray Barnhouse replied, On the cross, Jesus was hit by the truck of death so that now your mother only had to go through the shadow of it. She is now face to face 
with Jesus. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. If the band can come up, that would be great. Jubilee, we face. Jubilee, face to face, we will see Jesus, be with Jesus, experience Jesus, love Jesus, worship Jesus perfectly. Yes, everything doesn't make sense now. Yes, we grieve. Yes, we question sometimes. Yes, we doubt. Yes, we suffer. Yes, we fall or fail. Yes, our prayers don't always, prayers don't always work out the way we think they should. Um, but do you know what? We only see darkly now. Like through that old hazy mirror, mystery is good. Actually, it reminds us that we're not God. But remember this. Remember this. Think about this. Even the most profound glimpses we have of Jesus now in the Bible, what we see, even, in the la- even, even at the last book in Revelation, all those glimpses of Jesus are mere sketches, silhouettes, dim reflections of what he is actually like. Think about that. The paralysis healing Jesus, the prostitute loving Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount preaching Jesus, the miraculous storm karma Jesus, the feeding 5,000 plus Jesus, his eyes like blazing fire Jesus, his head with many crowns Jesus. If that gets me to fall at my feet now, overcome, overwhelmed now, what will it be like when I meet him face to face? I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing? Hallelujah! Will I be able to sing at all? I can only imagine. That's a song. Andrew Wilson writes this to end. We can celebrate the incomprehensible wonder of Jesus for now. Yet with tremble excitement, trembling excitement that we are only scratching the surface. That's Jesus. The lion and the lamb. The lifeboat and the scapegoat. The barnstorming Christmas. The star-forming, ocean-making, trespass-taking Lord of the world. And one day, One day, Jubilee, we will see him face to face. Therefore, Jubilee, as that song we just sang said, we sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. Let's uh, let's rise. Let's stand.